Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Angela, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your telephone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome everyone to Author in the Room. This is a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name is Madge Kaplan and I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI and I serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. They're designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, that is what is published in an article, and action, that all-important action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Matthew H. Seymour. He's the first author of the article, Clinical Decision Support and Appropriateness of Antimicrobial Prescribing, a Randomized Trial, published in the November 9, 2005 issue of JAMA. Dr. Seymour is Director of the Informatics Decision Enhancement and Surveillance Center at the VA Salt Lake City Health Center System. He's also Professor of Internal Medicine, Adjunct Professor of Medical Informatics, and Chief of the Division of Clinical Epidemiology at the University of Utah. Dr. Seymour's research interests include methods in infectious disease epidemiology, antibiotic resistance in hospitals and communities, computer decision support for antibiotic prescribing and infection control, and surveillance of medical devices. Welcome, Dr. Seymour. Thank you very much. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Seymour's research with an eye toward that all-important clinical improvement is Dr. Uma Kodigal. Dr. Kodigal is Vice President for Quality and Transformation and leader of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pursuing Perfection Initiative at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Kodigal is also the Director of the Center for Health Policy and Clinical Effectiveness, which focuses on the development, implementation, and study of interventions focused on improving the health of children. Welcome, Uma Kodigal, Dr. Kodigal. Thank you, Madge. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you back. The purpose of today's and future author in the room calls is for you to hear directly from an author, and sometimes it's authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. We know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is delivered can be very daunting. That's why each author in the room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert such as Dr. Kodigal, who's with us today. So here's how the hour goes. Dr. Seymour will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. Dr. Kodigal will then take 10 minutes to describe improvement methods and suggest some practical ways to apply the research findings to medical practice. And Dr. Kodigal will be uh, inviting Dr. Seymour into that conversation as well. At the bottom of the hour, or as close to it as possible, we'll turn to questions for Dr. Seymour and Dr. Kodigal uh, from callers, and we really do look forward to your questions and some discussion. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants are able to incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. So we ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you and we thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may really monitor and measure the value of these discussions. There are about 100 on the phone with us right now. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, the call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So welcome all and let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Matthew Seymour who will provide an overview of his newly published study of clinical decision supports that can reduce, we hope, inappropriate prescribing of antimicrobial drugs. Welcome again to author in the room, Dr. Seymour. We're really eager to hear about your findings. Uh, thank you very much, Madge. Um, so th this, again, is Dr. Matthew Seymour, 
I am the first author of this publication and uh, the principal investigator uh, for this uh, CDC-funded uh, study. We conducted a community randomized trial in Idaho and Utah of two different types of interventions to improve the appropriateness of antibiotic use, reduce unnecessary prescribing of antibiotics for viral infections, and improve the selection and dosing of antibiotics for these infections. The two different groups that were compared comprised one where only a community intervention was done that addressed uh, patient education and patient behavior. The other group comprised the same community intervention plus use of uh, clinical decision support tools uh, by the providers. We performed a randomized trial at the community level because of the other types of influences and trends in prescribing uh, of, antibiotic, of antibiotics. Uh, the comparison was made in order to isolate the impact, the specific effect of the use of the clinical decision support tools. We included uh, six communities from Utah and six communities from Idaho in this study. Uh, half of the Idaho and half of the Utah communities were randomized to each arm. The average size, the average population size of these communities was about 30,000 residents. Most of the physicians in these communities were primary care, divided among family practice, internal medicine, uh, pediatrics, as well as uh, nurse practitioners and PAs. Now I will describe uh, the, the uh, components of both the community intervention and uh, the provider intervention. The provider intervention uh, consisted of three different types of clinical decision support tools, two which were on paper and one which was on a handheld computer or PDA. One of the paper tools was a, a patient self-reported questionnaire that patients completed in the waiting room and then gave to their physician uh, to uh, complete the physical exam component and then use the results of the self-reported part of the questionnaire and the physical exam to uh, uh, identify the appropriate recommended therapy for that uh, type of respiratory infection. The other uh, paper tool was a graphical flowchart completed by the physician that was simple, easy to use, applied for each individual patient, and again led from a suspected diagnosis to a recommended therapy. The, the PDA version of the tool uh, was a transformation of the graphical flowchart to a handheld computer designed to require a minimum of clicks and page turns to get the uh, provider to the recommended therapy. The, the tool also provided recommendations about diagnosis. Uh, at the point where a recommendation about therapy was made, the uh, provider was asked to indicate whether or not the recommendation was followed, and if not, why not, and what was done instead. So again, both of all of these tools were used on individual patients uh, they were de-identified so that they could be compiled uh, for the purpose of the study, and uh, they provided individual case-specific recommendations, which is why they constituted a clinical decision support system. The, these tools are actually available on a website, which is www.impartproject.com. Uh, that's I-M-P-A-R-T project.org. Uh, and if you follow if you, the uh, tabs on the top of that website, you can get to both the PDA uh, computer file, 
and uh, to another tab which is labeled algorithms, you can get to the paper algorithms. Those algorithms and the PDA file are available for any, any, anyone's use and free of charge. They are what we used in this study, uh, and as we'll discuss later in this call, uh, what we would uh, expect is that uh, the updating and, and customization for your own lo local use would be done by you. The community intervention uh, comprised um, a series of, of uh, meetings with community leaders, uh, clinics, pharmacies, distribution of posters and other educational materials, uh, a mailing uh, of a refrigerator magnet, and then a development of a, a spiral uh, a flip chart that we call the self-care guide. This self-care guide was distributed at health fairs and clinics and in other types of one-on-one -on -one interactions with community residents. The behavior focus of this community intervention was to teach patients, teach residents how to um, manage common respiratory infections, when to, when to see a doctor, when antibiotics were indicated, how these common infections can be treated symptomatically. And secondly, uh, the other behavioral focus was to, to teach patients how to communicate with their doctor. If more information about these community education materials is also available on this website. We used two main measures of antibiotic use to assess the impact of this intervention. We collected uh, what's called sampled retail pharmacy data from a company called IMS, which projects the number of prescriptions per community divided by drug class based on retail pharmacy data. We also performed a chart review. The chart review was done of all physicians and providers, uh, regardless of whether they actually use the tools or not. We use the chart review to divide respiratory infections into three categories. Those uh, infections for which an antibiotics are never indicated, diagnoses for which antibiotics are sometimes indicated, which comprised otitis media, sinusitis, and pharyngitis, and antibiotics, and diagnoses for which antibiotics are always indicated, such as strep throat and pneumonia. The, the major categories of uh, diagnoses, the major types of diagnoses in the category of infections for which antibiotics are never indicated were colds, URIs, and acute bronchitis, as well as serous otitis media. Uh, I, I recommend that you read the methods section uh, of this manuscript for further details about uh, both the intervention as well as uh, the methods of data collection and, and analysis. Uh, briefly, we used uh, multi-level regression models to analyze the impact of the intervention on prescribing both at the community level using the sampled retail pharmacy data and for diagnosis, at the diagnosis-specific level based on chart review. The study um, began in January 2002 and uh, continued until uh, September 2003. A total of 125 primary care providers used the algorithms. This represented 71% of all the providers in, in the CDSS communities. So over 20,000 algorithms were returned to us from the providers that used uh, these algorithms. The impact of the intervention based on the comparison of the uh, total antibiotic use in the communities, in the CDSS communities post-intervention relative to pre-intervention compared to the uh, communities that received the community intervention alone was as follows. The 10% uh, there was a 10% reduction in total antibiotics prescribed. This translated to an estimated 93 uh, fewer prescriptions 
uh, per average size community per month. The uh, reduction in macrolide use was 28% in the CDSS communities. Both of these effects were statistically significant. Uh, I will add that uh, the vast majority of macrolide prescriptions were for azithromycin. The prescriptions of other drug classes did not change significantly. By chart review, we found uh, we had similar findings. The proportion of antibiotics, the, the proportion of respiratory infection visits within the antibiotics never indicated category declined from 35% to 24% pre-intervention to post-intervention. That is, uh, pre-intervention, 35% of visits in this never indicated category were associated with an antibiotic prescription and only 24% post-intervention in the CDSS communities. In contrast, this percent uh, did not change in the community intervention alone uh, group. Furthermore, we saw uh, a dramatic decrease in macrolide prescribing based on chart review, uh, combining all types of infections together. Uh, in CDSS communities, it decreased from 28% uh, to 17% of visits. We also found that there was a correlation between the number of algorithms completed and uh, the change in antibi antibiotic prescribing from pre-intervention to post-intervention. So in summary, we believe that this study demonstrated that CDSS reduced overall antibiotic use and improved the appropriateness of antibiotic selection for acute respiratory infections. We believe that this is consistent with the hypothesis that uh, repetitive use of an algorithm uh, can um, help to change habits and ingrain uh, improved practice patterns. I think I'll stop there and, and, and let Madge take back over if Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, we're we're off and running now uh, with this these findings, and we now want to turn to what the research and uh, Dr. Seymour's recommendations or some of his concluding remarks suggest about changes in clinical practice that uh, cl clinicians and those in a position to propose new practice ideas might consider. So, Dr. Uma Kodagal, we turn to you for what sort of improvement in care might follow from these latest findings. Welcome again. Thank you, Madge. Uh, greetings, everyone. My role in the next 10 minutes is to help take the lessons from the study and decide how to use it to make improvements in our own practices and in our healthcare system. This is a very important study, a very important problem with hugely optimistic results, can be used in small practices, and I'm particularly excited that it could be used in practices with no electronic medical record. The value of good research is to provide guidance on how we practice. We need to use this research to actively update the way we provide care, otherwise our patients don't see the impact. Let me briefly review how we would go about making these sorts of changes in order to achieve the outcomes that we desire. Our main guide in this work is to use something we call the model for improvement. This simple but powerful tool for driving improvement has been used extensively. In fact, as healthcare professionals, the method of systems improvement should look familiar to us for good reason. It is, in a sense, the scientific method applied to management and to improve processes. The process of organizational and practice improvement has two parts. The first part is about stating your hypothesis this is obviously familiar to most of us. The second part is about testing your hypothesis. Most of us do this in practice, but the model for improvement asks us to do this more explicitly. The first part, dating your hypothesis, has three components. First, set 
clear aims that everyone understands. Specifically, what is it that you are trying to achieve? In this case, we would say that our aim is to reduce inappropriate antibiotic use. The second, establish measures so you can tell if the changes you test or your small experiments are in fact leading to an improvement. Dr. Samore has presented his measures relating to antibiotic use. You might want to think about what those measures would be in your practice. Third, identify testable changes that are likely to lead to improvement. It's always important in the model for improvement to state your hypothesis, make your prediction about what changes will lead to the outcomes you desire. Once again, part one, establish aims and measures, identify testable changes based on data, and a solid hypothesis. Now, the second part is a little more interesting. It is testing your hypothesis. In this part, we run many experiments, if you'd like to think about it that way. This is not the same as experimenting on patients. This is more in line with rapidly testing rational changes in the way you practice in order to achieve safe, demonstrable improvements in care. This is, in fact, something that most of us do every day. We're simply asking that we do it in a more organized manner so that we could learn from the results of those changes and then systematically build upon what we learn. In improvement practice, the process of testing a hypothesis or running these experiments is called a Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle or a PDSA cycle. The process is simple and includes planning a test doing a test, collecting some data, and studying the results, and then acting on what you learned by rapidly running small subsequent tests. In the quality, if the quality improvement language of Plan, Do, Study, Act, or PDSA doesn't sit well with you, that's fine. Think about it as a scientific method in action, using the scientific method for rapid action-oriented learning. Using the best available knowledge, you have to try something, measure and understand the results of that trial, and fold that learning into the next trial to further improve your understanding. At a minimum, hopefully this explanation will help you be more conversant with the quality improvement personnel in your local health center. The last topic to mention is implementation. When you're ready to stop testing, when you have a good idea, and to start implementing, when does that happen? Testing changes also help you understand the logistics of implementation. When you've run successful tests of change and understand their results, you're much more informed about critical implementation issues. It is at this time that your team is ready to implement the changes on a broader scale, moving from testing, say, with one physician to implementing it in an entire clinic as an example. Now, we have heard several recommendations based on this study, and from these, I believe we can take a number of steps to begin to test and changes tomorrow. So I'd like to sort of like to start by thinking about some of those changes and then open the line for questions and comments. Dr. Samore, what changes would you suggest we begin with if I'm in a small practice and I'm really excited about this idea? I've been sort of thinking about this for a while, but I've been wondering how to go about it, and you've come along with some really tremendous ideas that I'd like to test. What do you think, what are the most successful practices in your study that have the highest results do? Well, that's an excellent question. What I would say is that uh, perhaps the first step is to uh, believe that the change is possible. Um, not all of the providers will even get to that step. So uh, there, there are many uh, physicians who might say, well, um, you know, I cannot really 
stand up to a patient who's demanding an antibiotic. So uh, I think the first the first step is to help them realize, you know, that patient satisfaction, in fact, is not related to whether or not a patient gets an antibiotic. It's instead related to the quality of the communication, and, and that there is a positive way to deal uh, with uh, patients that doesn't leave patients lost, you know, left out in the cold when they're told that, you know, they don't need an antibiotic. And in other words, there's a lot that we can offer in terms of symptomatic therapy. So, so that would be my first uh, comment. Um, and, and I can, you know, discuss that in more detail if, if there's interest. And I can discuss some of our experiences and conversations with uh, the, uh, physicians in these uh, rural communities, which are somewhat distinct from, uh, from larger urban areas. Uh, so the, the second uh, comment is that uh, there needs to be some agreement about appropriate management of these common respiratory infections. Everyone sees these infections. Uh, there are some uh, misconceptions. In, for instance, uh, one of the most common misconceptions is about the significance of you know, green or yellow phlegm, uh, the lack of appreciation that most sinusitis is actually viral and self-resolving and, and not in need of antibiotics. Um, another misconception that's pervasive is about, uh, about the role of antibiotics in acute bronchitis and, and the lack of benefit in that population. Uh, so the, the process of a, a, a arriving at some agreement about what, what is an appropriate approach that is something that we undertook with the physicians when we rolled out this intervention, but it can be done in, internally within a clinic. Um, so I, I'm uh, thinking to myself that most of the folks on the call are there because they're really interested. So, and I think uh, in, one of the nice things about the model for improvement is that you need only one person to begin with who thinks this is a good idea. And so let's assume that there is that one person. The idea of testing um, is really that you're not committing to do this for a lifetime, and this is one of the reasons why I like this model a lot in helping overcome resistance. So if I'm, I'm in the clinic and I kind of read your paper and I sort of bought into it, um, then uh, what barriers should I be thinking of besides will uh, that would get in the way of my being able to put this in my clinic? And sure. if you can talk about that, then perhaps we could design a simple test that people could try. Okay. Well, so the, 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 perhaps the most important barrier is the question, will using this tool take more time? You know, because uh, anything that, that consumes more time that does not easily fit into workflow will be intensely resisted. So uh, we, you know, we have designed both, you know, the paper algorithms and the computer algorithm to take a minimum of time. In fact, our interviews and surveys with the providers indicated that uh, most of them said it did not add any additional time to the um, to the duration of a of a, of a visit, patient visit. The the, the patient self-reported questionnaire, which is something that the patients complete in the in the lobby, is something that is different because that actually has the potential to to save time, but it also involves a greater change in, in practice. It, it does. Um, mean that uh, a system has to be put into place where the appropriate patients are given, given the, the uh, self-reported questionnaire. So what we found is that uh, that actually was less often used than the other tools, but those clinics where they did adopt it, some of them loved it. Now, the, the last comment is that our, you know, our bargain, if you will, with the providers was to ask them to use the tool for approximately 200 consecutive patients with respiratory infection. And we arrived at that figure somewhat arbitrarily, but the idea was 
give this a try. So it's completely consistent with the model that you're describing, that you, you give this a try, and in the process, our, our reasoning was this may be ingraining you know, in better habits. Um, thank you. Okay. So I, I think um, you have given us enough information, and I hope as most of the people on the call, as I am, are, are thinking about what they do tomorrow. The fact that this is, in fact, flu season, and there are a lot of people with respiratory symptoms, makes this even a greater time for us to conduct this test. So I was thinking that, that a test that we could run tomorrow would be to ask the person at the front desk that checks in patients to have a simple way to ask the patient when they come just tomorrow if there were any patients that were there for sick visits, if they were there for a respiratory illness. I believe most front office staff would not only be able to do it, but would be delighted to participate in a test. So for the first patient that comes in who has a respiratory illness tomorrow, you could download the form, make a few changes to it based upon the practice setting, or if you don't like some things and you want to add some things that relate to symptom duration, clip it to the front of the form and have the first patient fill it out. When that patient visits that physician, the first test of change is usually to obtain qualitative information. So I'd want to know, ask the patient, how did filling this form make you fill out? Did the form make sense? Was it inconvenient? How would you change it? And the patient might say, um, I think the time that you gave me the form looks perfectly fine, but I thought that this question was a little bit confusing and that you have your answer from your first test. You could also ask the physician in a simple qualitative way. So early on in PDSA cycles, we're not collecting large amounts of data. So one of the things people complain about is how much data should I collect? So you might ask the physician, how did this form help you interact with the patient? And uh, my guess is that the physician says one of three things. Um, that was great. I really didn't have to ask a lot of questions. The form identified the symptoms for me, and I could get right into the conversation of the appropriateness of antibiotic use. I was able to reassure the patient the visit took less than necessary. So one patient, one physician, one day um, is all you need. There may be alternative explanations. The physician may say the form was confusing, or the patient didn't seem to understand why the form was used. Or they may say, um, I'm not ready to do this. It doesn't right. matter. That's a test. You yeah. learn from that test and move on. Dr. Kodigal and Dr. Seymour, this is fascinating, and I really think you've gotten us off to a really solid start and some also very, really kind of drilled down now to some very practical and immediate steps. So I'm going to jump in here. This is uh, Madge Kaplan, uh, and I'm going to move us along, and we can return to some of these themes, and let's hear what uh, callers are thinking about now as a result of listening to both of you. Thank you so much. A quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of Author in the Room on-call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. So we are now going to turn to questions from you, our callers. Uh, the research presented today sheds some important light on clinical decision-making tools that can lead to better and more appropriate treatment for patients suffering from various respiratory ailments. So how does one make the best use of these findings in day-to-day -day practice? Uh, Dr. Kodigal and Dr. Seymour uh, started that process. Uh, let's hear what's on your mind. Please state your name, where you're from, and if possible, your discipline, and if your question is directed to someone in particular. Thank you. If you have a question, press zero then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. And our first question comes from Suman Kashyap with Olin Health Center. Your line is now open. Hi, this is uh, Keith Kamen. I'm an internist at Olin. Quickly, Suman. I had a question for you about uh, Dr. Samore. 
was curious as to what the difference between rural physicians and urban physicians are when they deal with patients with antibiotic issues. Okay. Uh, well, I'll make three comments. First of all, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that that's a great question. But I'll preface my comments by saying um, I, I grew up in Wisconsin, not in a rural community. I lived in Boston for 11 years, and now I live in Salt Lake City. So I, I'm, I can't speak from you know, personal identification as a rural physician. Uh, there is a, a member of our team, uh, Dr. Kim Bateman, who is the second author on this paper, who is a rural a primary care physician, and uh, this is something that uh, actually was, an, you know, represented an, an invaluable perspective as we uh, rolled out our our study. Uh, so the three comments are: uh, first, um, a couple of the communities that were included in our study were somewhat unique. Um, uh, for instance, you know, Sun Valley. Uh, so these are resort communities, and one of the comments we got uh, from physicians there was, you know, we, our patients are coming to Sun Valley for you know fifteen thousand dollars ski vacations. They, they're not going to they're not going to leave my office empty-handed. So th that was one uh, dis distinctive feature of certain of the communities. Uh, another aspect that was quite interesting. Uh, was uh, that uh, the, the, you know, the physicians and the providers are members of the community. And uh, a comment to make is that uh, it's not really possible to say this is a community intervention and it's completely different than a, a provider intervention because the community intervention impacts the provider. And for that matter, as an aside, um, one of the benefits of actually doing a patient education uh, in, intervention in addition to uh, the clinical de implementing the clinical decision support tools is that the, 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 this is important to the providers. I mean, it's important for them to see that we are trying to help them deal with their patients. Uh, but in the rural communities, I, I think perhaps even more than urban communities, the physicians are are. are uh, you know, very, feel very much a part of the community. If there's an untoward event, a patient you know dies, say, of overwhelming sepsis, for whatever reason, they this is a, a community tragedy, and and this is something that people commented to us about. And the the third uh, the third comment is that we had this sense, and and I have to say that. Uh, I'm not sure that I can back this up with data, but we had the sense that you know that some 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 providers are in the rural communities to get away from academicians like me, and um, so I mean I say that a little bit facetiously, but I think that you know it, it may be true that there's a certain tendency toward you know desiring independent even more independence than than providers in other areas. I mean, and not wanting to uh, in interference. You know, of the nature of the kind of being told what to do. So, so those are three things to mention. Thank you very much, and thank you for that question. Uh, let Let's move along. I mean, we can kind of get back to any of these themes. Uh, let Let's hear what uh, some other folks are thinking about. Thank you. Our next question comes from Pat Getz with Harbor Hospital. Your line is now open. Uh, hi, this is Moserasat. I'm a resident in a third year of internal medicine, and my question is for Dr. Samer as well. And um, it has to do with the information presented in Table 3. Um, I wonder if there's an explanation for why the CDSS arm produces a higher reduction in antibiotic use. Okay, maybe we can just clarify since people, not everyone has the article in, in front of them, uh, what, what specifically you're looking at at Table 3. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sorry. This, this is not true. Say more. Um, I actually missed the, the question. I, I heard just part of it. So, what was the question about Table Three? Reduction in antibiotic use in the second post-intervention year. Yeah, which is a remarkable difference. I wonder if there's an explanation why. And uh, also, I wonder if both modalities of intervention namely the community intervention and the CDSS, were continued um, the same way they were initiated during the second post-intervention period. Right. 
Okay, the, the, so the, uh, this is Dr. Seymour again. So that that uh, was a great question. Um, so the, the question. Oh, should I repeat the question? Uh, so the question was why uh, was there more of an effect on total antibiotic prescribing or on community level antibiotic prescribing in the second intervention year than, than the first intervention year? And um, the uh, so what was the other part of the question again? Whether or not the interventions were continued the right. same way, because you mentioned 200 consecutive patients were the ones that were uh, initially evaluated. Right. So, so the answer to that question is, first of all, that uh, looking at all people, all the providers who, who participated in use of these tools, about half of them uh, began their participation during the first year and, and half uh, during the second year. Uh, some providers used it on some patients during the first year and used it again during the second year. Some providers uh, used it on more than 200 patients. Some providers like to use it periodically, you know, for instance, for pediatric patients because the tool gave them uh, the, the appropriate dose to use based on the weight of the child. And so they found that convenient and actually, uh, you know, something they, they uh, found that they desired to use even outside of the study. Uh, so the, you know, I don't have an exact explanation for why uh, there, there is a greater effect during the second year. I can speculate, um, and my speculation is that um, there's a, a cumulative impact of the intervention. Uh, you know, so each year we uh, come out to the community and, and, and have a presentation of the project uh, during the second intervention year. We, we fed them back some data uh, that we had collected about community-level antibiotic use. Uh, there, the, this result, you know, the, the higher impact during the second intervention year suggests that the intervention is at least sustainable. I, I think it's important to recognize that even though we had almost three-quarters of the physicians using the tool, still not everyone used it. And, and so we're presenting an intention to treat analysis. And, you know, so what we may be seeing is a kind of a diffusion of, of innovation, perhaps, or at least a diffusion of practice that, you know, builds and accumulates over time. Now, it would be very interesting, of course, to go back to these communities and look at the prescribing patterns now, but we don't have that data. Dr. Kodegal, this is Madge Kaplan, and Dr. Seymour brings up an interesting point in relationship to, in response to the question, which perhaps you might quickly address, which is that that feedback and how important that is in terms of uh, fomenting change, uh, being able to plan tests, do tests, and then begin to see uh, what changes may be coming about. And I, I, I just happened to my ears sort of perked up at the notion of, of reviewing data and how critical that is in the process. Um, I think, Matt, you bring up a really important question. An important part of accelerating change even is really the use of data, which is, of course, fundamental to the model for improvement is under the thing called how will I know that the change is an improvement. But we've learned a lot of things about different ways to use data. As a researcher in the past, I used to think I had to collect a lot of data and then sort of know that it was statistically significant. What I've learned is that feedback of data on an almost daily basis accelerates the change. And learning from failures is really important. So Dr. Samore pointed out that in their protocol, if somebody didn't use an antibiotic um, or didn't follow the protocol, they would simply say didn't and say, why not? That why not is really an important source of information. So feeding back data, uh, and I'd say small amounts of data really on a regular basis, not waiting to collect it over periods of time is hugely important in changing it and falls into the category of a level two reliability intervention, which means that you can get to much higher levels of adherence to processes doing that. Thanks so much uh, for shedding some light on that. Uh, okay, Angela, do we have another question? Yes, we do. And the next question comes from Benjamin Burko with Tiny Tots Medical Center. Your line is now open. 
Benjamin Berko with Tiny Tots Medical Center. Your line is open. Sorry, yes, hi. Um, this uh, following question relates to uh, more generally the uh, a standard tool to gauge the readiness for change. <laughs> is there is there a questionnaire that, uh, as you said, it's the most important very first step, and there's so many programs I would more than willing to start, but how to gauge readiness for change? Uh, well, both of you, I suppose, uh, Dr. Kodogal and Dr. Seymour, either one. Well, I'm smiling because I'd like you to join our team if you can move to Salt Lake City. Um, so, I mean, that is a great comment. Um, I mean, it operates both at the patient level and the physician level. Uh, I think, you know, what I'll just respond, how I'll respond is just to say that we did not use a formal tool to assess that. I mean, we have an informal approach, but we did not, you know, actually measure that directly. I mean, but we certainly were, you know, inspired by the stages of change model and thought a lot about that, especially in the context uh, of the you know of the community intervention, um, but of course, what's so interesting about applying stages of change to the patient perspective is that they're not the ones who are writing the antibiotic prescriptions. But 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 that's why I said that with the patients, we we did identify two two behaviors that they could that we could impact on, and and those were you know the self-management of respiratory infection and in the communication with their doctor. And uh, so, but that's just a great comment, and uh, I, I wish I could give you a better answer, but that's the one I have. Would be a, maybe a magic bullet or something. Uh, Dr. Kodogal, any thoughts I on think, that? I would, I would agree. I don't, we don't use a formal mechanism to categorize readiness for change, but we use very extensively the diffusion of innovation model of uh, Everett Rogers. And what, what I basically look for is one innovator. So who is that person in the practice that, you know, appears ready to think about an idea? And it's important in searching for those people to recognize that some people may be innovators in one category but will be late adopters in another. So just because somebody didn't think one idea was good, it doesn't mean that they don't think the other idea is good. And I think once you start to look for them, I find that they're, they're there in every practice and all you need is one to start testing. Yeah, I really want to second that in the context of our study, uh, and this was especially important to us from the technology side, you know, because as you can imagine, uh, people have a lot of glitches when they uh, work with PDAs, you know, the, the download mechanism may not work, et cetera, and uh, so it was crucial for us to have one or two providers in each area that uh, would provide support of a technical nature and uh, just support of the program in general. And one thing that we did uh, at the end of our project when we went back for the last visit, you know, was, was to give a gift, you know, to these individuals that, you know, were, were particularly helpful. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Another question, please. Yes. And I'd like to remind everyone, if you'd like to ask a question, please press zero one on your touchstone phone. And also, if you are on a speakerphone, please, whoever's asking the question, pick up the, the line so that we can hear your question clearly. And our next question comes from Mark Graber with VA Medical Center. Your line is now open. Thank you. My name is Mark Graber. I'm an internist at Stony Brook in New York. I'm interested in decision support systems, and I was amazed at the uh, participation rate that you were able to achieve. Uh, many studies have reported that physicians use these things uh, infrequently. So I was hoping you could give us some tips on, on how you get people to use decision support systems and maybe uh, tell us how much the physicians were paid to, to use your system. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm also smiling at that question. Um, so you're right. I, I completely agree that um, anything that takes time, um, you know, needs to be compensated, and and so we you know mentioned this in our paper, but our reimbursement to the physicians was uh, three dollars a case, up to two hundred cases, or 
where um, they got to keep the PDA. And um, so, but I have to say that the financial part of that was a small part of, of getting the participation rate as, as high as we were able to get it. Um, you know, because, I mean, for one thing, you know, it, when physicians are used to um, being solicited to participate in, in pharmaceutical industry-supported projects, the, the reimbursement is much, you know, much more lucrative, for one thing. Uh, and this was actually mentioned to us. But um, it, so I think that, you know, the answer to your question is that it took a lot of um, contact and, and follow-up. I mean, it, it, it was particularly difficult uh, because these uh, communities were far-flung over, you know, hundreds of miles. Of, of distance, and it, it was not possible for us to visit each one frequently. Uh, so it was a combination of, you know, cajoling at an individual level, uh, you know, recruiting people to participate at the group meetings, and, um, you know, I have to say that they didn't, you know, even though we had 71% participation, they didn't, they did not all reach, you know, 200 cases. So there was quite very, you know, quite a bit of variability in the level of participation among those who participated. Um, so, you know, I don't have an answer except, again, I think that one of the key aspects to our project was that we, this was a tool designed by physicians, used, previously used and pilot tested by physicians, and we were extremely cognizant of the, of the time it would take to, to complete these forms the ones that the physicians were completing, or the you know the use of the handheld computer, and, and I think that 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 was a major factor in our success. Thank you very much. Uh, we're I see the clock is ticking here, so let's see if we can get in one or two more questions if there are some. Yes, our next question comes from Gordon Schiff with Cook County Hospital. Your hmm. line is now open. Um, my question is sort of the converse of the one about the remarkable rate the second year sort of the glass half empty. I'm, I'm surprised for all the intensity of the intervention, both in the community as well as the individual decision support level, you didn't get a bigger bang for your buck. I, I was wondering if you were expecting more, more of that. I mean, you've talked about 50% inappropriate prescribing rates in these settings especially, yet you only got at best uh, that 8% decrease. So I, I wonder if you want to comment on that. Well, thank, thank you, you know, Gordon. Um, I, I shouldn't have expected all, you know, easy questions. Uh, you, know, th you know, thank you for that comment. Um, I, uh, I, um, I, I, I know that you've done a lot of work in computer decision support, and uh, in your comment is, you know, well taken. Um, basically, you know, the bottom line is that this is not you know, the, the magic bullet for the problem of overprescribing. And, I mean, I have to be honest, I mean, just as you've said, uh, you know, a 10% reduction in total prescribing is not, you know, is not that dramatic and probably won't, you know, really make a significant dent in uh, antibiotic resistance. Um, so uh, I think more optimistically, there was a bigger impact on, on macrolide use. So it seems like it's easier to get doctors to change the antibiotic than to just not give the antibiotic at all. And I have to say also that, you know, that we did do a double intervention. You know, we don't know what would have happened if only the, you know, the CDSS was implemented without the, without the patient intervention. But with all that, I mean, the impact was roughly comparable to, you know, a number of other studies. So nobody has, does have a magic bullet yet for this problem. I think that, I mean, that, so I have two things to say about where this is going. I mean, first, uh, I think we need, we need tools that integrate into practice better. So I, I think the, the, the integration of, this, of these algorithms and decision support tools with electronic prescribing is absolutely necessary and I think is likely or at least possibly going to have a bigger impact. I think that addressing the, 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 um, the the nature of the communication between the doctor and the patient, you know, this, the communication strategies that doctors can use that, that work better at meeting the patient's needs, you know, so to speak. I think, that, I think that's another aspect that was not a direct target in the study and that uh, you know, probably needs to be addressed 
you know, in future studies to get a bigger effect. I, I think you know, for us to get to where, say, the Netherlands is in terms of antibiotic use, it was going to, it was going to take a lot more than you know, just implementing CDSS tools. Um, Mash, do you, do you have a minute for me to respond? Please, right. <laughs> I'll set so a limit, but definitely jump in here, yes. It's an alternative hypothesis, and, and that is that, that while we might design interventions, how we actually get those interventions to be used reliably, perhaps knowledge for that comes from other industries. And I would refer the callers to the IHI website, IHI.org, um, and look for uh, presentations on reliability. Um, we have been using these tools and can get to 99% really used and impact. And I just want to mention a couple of things that I would think we would do differently. First, I think is the use of checklists and reminders, making, making things visible, differentiation such as color coding, real-time identification of failures and feedback of information taking advantage of habits and patterns. These are some of the things, some of the tools that you could use as you design your process, either for embedding the PDA or for embedding the protocol um, that could result in much higher, uh, you know, use of, of the process. So we sort of tend to think about interventions in science as some big thing we do and then we see the effect. In the improvement world, I think when you apply this tool, you're going to test it many, many, many times till you get the right answer, and then you're going to move to implement it. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and I'm, I will jump in here uh, as we approach the top of the hour. Good resources, uh, good things for folks to uh, chew on uh, going forward, and that is all the time we do have for questions. There will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for anyone who'd like to con uh, continue a conversation with one another. You will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Look under Community, then Discussion Groups. In in order to view or participate in the discussion group, you do need to register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. So we're coming to the end of this tenth in a series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. I want to thank Dr. Matthew Seymour and Dr. Uma Kodigal for their knowledge and guidance today, and I'm going to give each of them a, perhaps a 30, 40 seconds uh, to make a closing remark, something to leave us with. Uh, why don't we start with you, Dr. Seymour? Okay. Well, I, I just wanted to express my appreciation to IHI, to John. Uh, into this audience. I mean, this has been a terrific experience for me. Last comment, we, we have tried to add other components to the intervention, such as addressing the nurse triage process of where patients call to make appointments for respiratory infections. So that's another aspect of, of behavior change in the, in the office practice that I think needs to be addressed. So there's just so much more to do, and I'm looking forward to that happening. Uh, in many different places. Thank you very much. And Dr. Kodigal? Uh, Madge, I want to thank you and Dr. Seymour for his presentation. I think this is a promising opportunity to reduce inappropriate antibiotic use. I believe that a simple test tomorrow on a single patient and a single physician will help us understand how to adapt this process into our setting. And I would encourage our callers to do that. And I hope we'll have an opportunity to hear from them about how successful they've been. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you both. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on January 18, 2006. Featured guest is the first author, Dr. Sandra Dial, who will be discussing gastric acid suppressive agents and community acquired Clostridium difficile associated disease, which is hot off the press in the December 21st issue of JAMA. And you can find further details on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. 
The reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether author in the room participants make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion suggests some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale starting tomorrow. We are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. Thanks to all who've joined us today for taking the time to complete the surveys and thanks for your participation. And thanks to our guests again and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day.